your expertise, and an opportunity to represent those in your community by running as a candidate for your local station board. The candidates in this election are members just like you who would like to help keep the Pacifica Radio Network alive by making important decisions with respect to ensuring local community needs are being prioritized. Visit PacificaElections2010.org to download a nomination package and contact the local election supervisor, Oriana Saportas, at 510-250-2471. Nominations close Monday, July 19th. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It's 3 p.m. Up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. Primeramente para felicitarlos por toda la cobertura que están haciendo. Y gracias a ello los padres de familia nos mantenemos bien informados. Entonces yo digo que los maestros tienen razón y adelante. Quiero decir a mis compañeros, bueno, a mis maestras, que sus alumnas no podemos esperar el tiempo que quieran. You just heard excerpts of the film Un Poquito de Tanta Verdad, A Little Bit of So Much Truth, which is a 90-minute documentary that captures the unprecedented media phenomenon that emerged when tens of thousands of school teachers, housewives, and so many people from different walks of life came to defend their grassroots struggle for social, cultural, and economic justice. And with me to talk about the film and about the struggle continuing to take place in Oaxaca is a producer of the film, award-winning filmmaker, Jill Friedberg, who is joining us by phone today. Welcome to Open Book here on KPFA. Thanks so much. I wanted to start with talking about how your film chronicles the events when, as we said earlier, where the people of Oaxaca, mostly organized through APO, the Popular Assembly of the Peoples of Oaxaca, took 14 radio stations and one TV station into their own hands, using them to organize and mobilize against a legacy of injustices made much more pronounced by the governor of Oaxaca, Ulysses Ruiz Ortiz. I wonder if you could start by describing the political climate that led to the uprising by the people of Oaxaca. Sure. Oaxaca is um, one of the poorest states in Mexico, and although it's rich in natural resources, um, it's also one of the most indigenous states in Oaxaca. So the people there have been subjected to decades, um, really centuries, of um, racial injustice, economic injustice, um, a lot of um, government repression and corruption and um, have been have lived under over 70 almost 80 years of single party rule under the PRI um, and so when in June of 2006 the annual teacher strike was um, attacked by state police sent by the governor Ulises Ruiz Ortiz who was known to have entered through electoral fraud the year before it was um it was the straw that broke the camel's back in in a in a state that really had um had endured more um injustice than than, than they were they were ready to to continue enduring and um and so after the police attack on the on the teachers was when uh, people from all walks of life and from all over the state not just in the capital city of Oaxaca came together um to use massive nonviolent civil disobedience to demand that uh, governor's resignation, and uh, you know a little bit more. Of the political context is the people of Oaxaca of Oaxaca had actually successfully removed 
three governors from power um, in uh, within the 20th century. So this was not, um, uh, at least from their perspective, not an unreasonable demand. Oaxaca, because of its indigenous nature, has a lot of experience with horizontal, popular, consensus-based governance and and the belief that those who govern govern are put there by the people, and if they fail to do their job, then they they should also be removed or replaced by the people. So that was some of the context leading up to what happened last year. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, Oaxaca is one of the poorest states of Mexico, and teachers are historically underpaid in all of Mexico, but uh, a lot more in uh, the southern states, uh, Oaxaca in particular. Can you talk about APO? The APO, the uh, Popular Assembly of the Peoples of Oaxaca, was formed um, last year, in July of last year, after the teachers' strike encampment was attacked by the police. And while um, it was definitely an assembly in which the teachers' movement of Oaxaca was participating, it was also um, made up of um, other unions, community organizations, indigenous communities, youth, students, neighborhoods, um, were all participating in this assembly, and they specifically chose to make themselves an assembly and not an alliance or a coalition or an organization or a frente or anything else because in Oaxaca, assembly is the governance structure used in indigenous communities and is consensus-based and is leaderless. And so the idea was that there were all of these different walks of life, all of these different parts of civil society who shared this common objective of removing the governor from power and that they weren't going to create a top-down organization because uh, historically in Oaxaca, top-down organizations end up a little too heavy at the top. Um, and so it was a very, a very cumbersome and laborious structure to choose because the assemblies can go on for days, but they do, at least in theory, guarantee that everyone has a voice. And the teachers' movement was participating in that um, and brought a lot of political organization from their 27 years of, of or mobilizing politically to that, but so did a lot of the community organizations who are participating, who've also been very politically active for decades in resisting a lot of the political and economic uh, injustice that they've experienced in their communities. And the first decision of the APO was, in order to remove the governor from power, we're going to demonstrate that the state is ungovernable, that he can't govern, and we're going to do that by massive statewide nonviolent civil disobedience. They started out by um, taking over, or rather blockading, every public government building in the capital. Most major freeways and highways in Oaxaca were blockaded, but also a lot of municipal and town uh, government buildings were taken over and replaced with popular, local popular governments. So um, as the months went by, the APO became... Um, more inclusive in terms of who was participating after the um, uh, the uh, city of Oaxaca started putting up barricades every night because of the um, death squads that were attacking protest encampments. Then people became um, participants in the assembly as representatives of their barricade, for example, or representatives of their neighborhood. So um, it's a difficult structure for people who who aren't from Oaxaca to understand because it's very it's very Oaxacan the assembly mm-hmm. structure um, and uh, but that's you know it's a little bit of background on the Apo. Mm-hmm. 
And a lot of that Asamblea, as you mentioned, come out of the history of so many indigenous nations that live within the state of Oaxaca. I don't think people really realize that. I think that we understand that Mexico's indigenous and it's usually relegated to the Azteca and the Mayan, but not really thinking about the the state of Oaxaca, the power of the Zapotec community, as well as the Mixteca and all of that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, Oaxaca has um, 16 uh, completely distinct indigenous groups within, you know, what's relatively a, a small state. And we're talking about uh, completely different languages. The Zapotecs and the Mixtecs can't, you know, can't, don't understand each other when they're speaking their languages. Um, and that have um, and have that have very distinct um, political and cultural practices, um, and that are very much uh, um, alive. You know, there's there's been a lot of appropriation and commercialization of indigenous culture in Oaxaca mm-hmm. to, because to make Oaxaca a, a popular tourist destination. But if you leave the city and you can go less than an hour outside of the city and visit communities where. The majority of the people over 60 and under 12 only speak the local indigenous language and don't speak Spanish, or if they speak it, they don't speak it um, very well, and that everyone in their, that their community um, definitely has some command of the, of the local indigenous language. So um, I think you're right that a lot of people are surprised to learn that about Oaxaca and southern Mexico in general, that it still remains profoundly um, indigenous and not just in a sort of, you know, tourist attraction sense. Right. As a matter of fact, I really appreciate it in your film when you included the part where the government uh, canceled the Gelaguetza. Mm-hmm. The Gelaguetza means to give and receive, and it's a um, it's sort of like a potlatch um, to make a comparison to something that people in this country would be more familiar with. It's uh, different indigenous communities coming together to share their food, their um, dance, their music, and in Oaxaca... Uh, you know, every indigenous community has a, a local band. Um, and so a few decades ago, that was appropriated by the local um, pre-governments, and especially in the, in, the, in the capital city, and turned into a tourist attraction. Right. And even then, it was still accessible to, to Oaxacans who wanted to go. And it was only in recent years that it became so expensive and so targeted at tourists that Oaxacans could no longer participate. So they were bringing in these dancers and bands from communities around Oaxaca, paying them virtually nothing and charging 40 or 50 U.S. dollars a ticket for people to attend. Mm-hmm. And for years, people have been upset about that and threatening to boycott the event. And last year, because of the the momentum of this massive statewide political mobilization that was happening, the movement was actually to uh, capable, able to boycott the governor's uh, event, Gelaguetza event, um, which the governor then went on TV saying, well, we're canceling it because we don't want radical vandals to attack the participants. But not only were succeeded in having his version canceled, but they organized their own, which was a huge success. It was attended by over 20,000 people, and the people who attended, who weren't just movement participants, tourists went, and just people from the city of Oaxaca went, and said it was not only much more fun and free, but much more authentic because they weren't 
getting the, um, you know, the communities who've been threatened by the PRI, send us your dancers and your band or, you know, or else. Mm-hmm. These were communities who really believed in, in the true meaning of the Gaelic Etza. So there were much, much more representation, way more bands. And, um, and it was an amazing example, not only of the movement's ability to also build something and not just be against their governor, but to really reclaim uh, what's theirs to begin with. That's the voice of award-winning filmmaker Jill Friedberg, and we're talking about her latest film, Un Poquito de Tanta Verdad, A Little Bit of So Much Truth, that chronicles the struggle that took place in Oaxaca. And I wanted to ask you, you were there, and do I understand correctly you were going to do somewhat of a uh, follow-up on your earlier film? Well, when, when things first started to heat up in Oaxaca, you know, I had just finished distribution of my last film, Granito Arena, which was filmed in Oaxaca about the teachers' movement. And when I was filming Granito Arena, I had begun collaborating with Radio Plantón, which was the teachers' movement community radio station. And that radio station was destroyed in the police attack um, mm-hmm. in June of 2006. So when I went down in July, I went down thinking, well, I'm going to take my camera and I'll do some filming and maybe I'll do a little epilogue to Granito Arena. So I didn't go down there thinking a whole other film is in the works. And I don't think, really nobody knew what was going to happen in Oaxaca. About the time that 3,000 women took over the state television station, um, I think that was when it was clear to me that not only was another film in the works, but that it was that this incredible, unprecedented, in world history um, media phenomenon was emerging, where you had a social movement that suddenly had enough media in its own hands to organize itself, but also to counter the commercial media's um, misinformation about the movement. So that's when I decided I was making another film. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how inspiring it was for these folks, as we mentioned earlier, school teachers, housewives, indigenous groups, and really people from all walks of life that took control over 14 radio stations and a television station. Is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, it was over It was over the span of, of several months. I mean, and and something that I think is important to clarify is that you know, people got the, get the idea when they hear that, that there was these, you know, sort of mobs in the streets taking mm-hmm. over radio stations. But mm-hmm. what really happened is that the movement had in its own hands its own communi- legitimate community media, and that was the, the teacher's um, community radio station, Radio Plantón, which was destroyed, utterly destroyed in the police attack um, on the teachers in June. And so it was in response to that, you know, you've, you're attacking our media, and it had become a very important tool in terms of being a catalyst for organizing within the movement, that the movement just knew that it needed to have at least one radio station in its hands to carry, to keep that momentum going and to keep people informed about what was happening and to counter the mainstream media's accounts, which were saying that they were radical terrorist vandals who were, you know, destroying one of Mexico's most popular tourist destinations. So when the radio plantón was destroyed, they, they, the students took over the university radio station, and that was um, everyone in the city was listening to Radio Universidad. There was, whether you were for the movement or against it, you were listening to Radio Universidad. Mm-hmm. And then um, somewhat spontaneously, the women who had been sort of trying to assert their their role and their position in the movement and had, had had called together a women's march, which turned out being much bigger than they expected, sort of spontaneously and in response to the rage that they felt at being in the movement 
knowing what they were experiencing and then seeing how it was being depicted on the commercial television, decided mm-hmm. to take over the, the state-run television station. It was a nonviolent takeover. They arrived. They asked for an hour of airtime, arguing that it's a state-run television. It's paid for with our tax dollars. In fact, the slogan of the station is the Oaxacan People's Channel. Right. Yet it had been... In, it had been the voice of the governor, period. He had been on the, you know, the TV station every day giving his version. So they walked in, they asked for an hour of airtime. The manager said, no, I'm sorry, that's not possible. And they said, oh, all right, well then step aside because now we're running the station. And they ran it for three weeks. They got people to come in and help them operate the cameras. And it also had a radio station. It was an, uh, a high-powered FM radio station that they renamed Radio Kitchen Pot and a television station. And it became a forum where anyone from across the state or from the neighborhoods in and around Oaxaca City could come in and ask for airtime on the radio or the television to talk about the grievances in their community, whether it be paramilitary attacks or lack of water. Um, and they were also airing documentaries that, you know, the governor never would have allowed on, on television about water issues, about neoliberalism, about indigenous communities. So um, it was a Really, it wasn't, it didn't come out of a place of profound media analysis. It came out of a rage and an understanding that they had to have media outlets in their hands to continue mobilizing the way that they were. And, um, and they made history doing it. And it wasn't until that television station was attacked at dawn by, um, plainclothes police who actually just destroyed the transmitter by putting bullets in it, um, that the movement went out that very same morning and took over 14 commercial radio stations, most of which they very shortly thereafter gave back. But they did keep um, several of those stations in their hands for um, almost two months. Well, it was definitely inspiring for many of us in the left as well as, as those in media, and yet you would think it would happen more often. And I wondered what your thoughts were that, given that you're involved in, in the indie media movement. Talk about what it was like for you coming from the United States to see that happen. What was most, what was most interesting for me was really that there wasn't, whereas in, where in sort of independent media and media democratization movements in the U.S., for example, there's quite a bit of analysis. There's quite a bit of discussion about policy. Um, and, you know, what was happening in Oaxaca, like I said, didn't come from a place of profound media analysis. Not that there aren't people there having those conversations. There definitely mm-hmm. are. It just came from, A, it came from this place of knowing that they needed to have a voice. And it also came from a much different sense about a, a much different understanding, and in my opinion, a much healthier understanding of what is public. So there, for them to say, we pay for this television station and therefore actually it is ours, was not a stretch of the imagination. And that to them, they weren't carrying out an, a criminal act by making space for themselves to have a voice on that station and in the airwaves in general. They really have a much more, um, a much healthier understanding of the airwaves that it's not something that we should be re- having to ask permission for um, and that we should be giving away to, to, um, to commercial interests um, and just people calling in, expressing their opinion about, you know, how upset they were with the governor and not as, you know, I thought, and, and people in the film also articulate that that was something that they thought was really was lacking, um, although it's hard, you know, in the moment if there's paramilitaries outside your radio station shooting at you, it's hard to carry on a conversation about neoliberalism as opposed to just saying, they're shooting at us, we, right. need, we 
help. So mm-hmm. it was also there were different difficult circumstances under which to have a really, you know, a really in-depth programming. But you know that was the, one of the things that Radio Planton, which was destroyed um, in June, did have. It had a you know really very diverse and broad-based programming made up of lots of different communities and sectors of civil society. And I believe that that's the reason that when the teachers were attacked and the radio station was destroyed is one of the reasons that so many people came out in the streets that very same day because they had heard their community's voices in that radio station and were furious that it had been destroyed. You're listening to Jill Friedberg, filmmaker, and we're talking about her latest film, Un Poquito de Tanta Verdad, A Little Bit of So Much Truth, that deals with the struggle that took place in Oaxaca in the summer 2006. Listening to you speak, I'm reminded of what you did include in your film, which was some of the criticism in hindsight, I guess not being able to provide that analysis for those that might have not known or maybe didn't know the roots of of oppression, repression taking place in Oaxaca. What are your thoughts about the limitations of what happened and how is Radio Plantón addressing that? Yeah, I mean, it definitely, um, you know, in the city, you know, there's an entire class of very economically privileged people who don't really have any reason to be upset with the governor and who have, you know, sort of started suffering last you know, suffering in quotes last summer when suddenly their city was shut down with barricades and blockades and Mm -hmm. occupied buildings, whereas most of the people in Oaxaca were, you know, born suffering in the sense that they're used to enduring hardship and they have have always been subject to injustice. And Mm so there was a lot of these people in this privileged class in Oaxaca City, um, you know, they they, they had what they were hearing on the commercial radio and especially what they were seeing on commercial television, which was this fear instilling um, repetition of, you know, the city of Oaxaca is under siege by, you know, radicals who are associated with clandestine guerrilla groups and that sort of thing when things had really gotten intense and there wasn't a lot of time and opportunity for for profound analysis on those stations. They didn't hear people from the indigenous communities talking about what their life had experience had been and why they were willing to come to the city and risk their lives in the interest of changing a bad political system in Oaxaca. They didn't have the opportunity to sort of learn about who was participating in this movement and why. Um, whereas earlier on with Radio Plantón and also with Radio Ciudad and on the television station when it was in the hands of the women, there was that opportunity for people who were sort of on the fence about what to think about what was happening. There was an opportunity for them to actually learn something about who were these people who were in the streets who were making their lives so, you know, so inconvenient. I'm glad that you mentioned how still in, well, in Oaxaca and in many towns in Mexico, it's very, um, still segregated. I wanted you to talk about those uh, reactionary forces that also use the media to demonize the struggle of Apo and uh, the people in Oaxaca because you had some pretty serious accusations. There was uh, a part that you included in the film where parents were warned not to let their daughters out because of, what was it, I guess, fear of being raped or mugged yeah. or what? Yeah, the, the example that I used in the film was, I mean, there was a lot of things that I was not able to record off that station that I wish I had that were really just outright giving out of people's names and addresses, people who yeah. are believed to be participating in the movement, saying, 
this person, you know, puts up the barricade in such and such neighborhood and his address is if anybody wants to go and, you know, quote unquote investigate. But the thing that I recorded included in the film was them saying, telling young women not to go out at night because most of the people in the oppo were known to be infected with AIDS and they were intentionally raping women at night to infect them. Wow. Um, and that was the kind of, you know, fear-mongering that was uh, being broadcast on a very high-powered FM station. And I think the reason that all of the stations went off the air, they were forced to go off the air by the governor so that the movement wouldn't be able to figure out whose transmitter it was coming from. I wanted you to talk about what you see as some long-lasting effects in terms of continuing this struggle. That is, it's really not over. Yeah, I mean, the movement was subjected to... Um, and really continues to be subjected to some of the worst human rights abuses in Mexican history, um, which, you know, reached an extreme in late November, early December, but which continue basically whenever anybody uh, tries to organize and mobilize again. Um, you know, we're just talking about widespread disappearances, torture, um, and also psychological torture, people being um, followed, surveilled, um, that sort of thing, death threats to people who try to get radio stations back on the air. And despite that, there's still a lot of organizing going on. There's also some very upsetting, though not surprising, divisions. And then, I mean, this was predicted that, that, that this movement had what it took to remove the governor from power, which would in turn shift the way that Oaxacans thought about governance in Oaxaca. And certainly the people of Oaxaca had their thinking changed in terms of how they think about the media. But that this was not necessarily in its existing form a movement that could then, you know, go hand in hand together down the road to the horizon rebuilding government in, in Oaxaca because it was so broad-based and such a broad spectrum of ideologies and organizing styles. And so that, you know, they, rather than removing a governor who has no allies, political or otherwise, who who is in fact still not governing, uh, mm -hmm. rather than removing him from power, the federal government decided to just carry out such a brutal repression and such a media campaign against the movement that people would be forced to back down. When you're in Oaxaca, it still doesn't feel like the governor is governing. It feels like there's been this very, very, very thin veneer of normalcy that's being painted over the city of Oaxaca, much like the graffiti is being painted over every morning. That is the only way that they can maintain that veneer of normalcy is to have an incredible police presence. Whenever the governor makes an appearance, any kind of public civic event, they have to have a they have these horrific police presences that's doing way more to drive out tourists than the social movement ever did. Mm -hmm. And that is all that's required just to sort of create this sense that the governor is governing. But in fact, you can't go anywhere. Just last week, he tried to carry out an event in one of uh, the rural municipalities, and he couldn't land his helicopter because all the students right. and teachers ran out onto the helicopter pad and refused to, to let it land. So, in, and in general, people have people really had their, um, their level of what they're willing to stand for shifted. The government knows that as well, too. They know that there's very little that they can get away with that won't provoke another massive popular uh, mobilization. It's just a matter of people having enough time to overcome the fear that, um, that they've carried with them as a result of the repression. As an independent filmmaker, are you hopeful? I am hopeful. I mean, it's, it's hard for me at this point, having been there when the repression hit its worst, and then um, having gone back in March and again in July and seen that people are 
you know, on, on, on some level, people in the city who've been involved all along, they're exhausted, they're despairing, and they're really asking, what more can we do? We've tried everything nonviolent within our power, and the repression just keeps getting worse. So there is, you know, on that hand, it's, it's, it's hard not to, to lose hope. But on the other hand, you know, if not on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, amazing creative things are happening both in the capital of Oaxaca and around the state in terms of new approaches to organizing and new radio stations going on the air. And, um, you know, the Oaxacans are, are uh, you know, they've been, do- they've been fighting this for 500 years, and, um, mm-hmm. and uh, that gives me hope because I see that they're still, you know, despite the repression and the fear and the exhaustion, they're still looking for creative ways to 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 undo a bad political system ultimately jill friedberg i want to thank you so much for joining us here on open book okay thank you so much you've been listening to a conversation with filmmaker jill friedberg and we've been talking about her film un poquito de tanta verdad a little bit of so much truth which is a 90-minute documentary that captures the unprecedented media phenomenon that emerged when tens of thousands of oaxaqueños rose to defend their grassroots struggle for social cultural and economic justice for more information you can go to corugate.org and this has been cover to cover open book i've been your host amelia gonzalez thanks for listening que te has creído cabeza de alcornoque que te has creído cabeza de alcornoque Since the birth of KPFA's local station board elections, we have spent a five-figure budget every election year printing and mailing election material. We really need your feedback in order to cut the cost of this year's election and upcoming elections. At PacificaElections2010.org, you will find a green election survey. Please fill out this short survey and inform us if you need a paper copy of candidate statements sent with your ballot this year. You can get full candidate statements online at Pacifica2010.org. By reading candidate statements online, you can help cut printing and mailing costs by more than a third. Furthermore, there will be much more information online as you will have access to other media such as audio and video of this year's candidates. Visit Pacifica Election.